Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like vests, grass, and lemonade. Hmm. Oh, I'd love to do the history of lemonade. I think that would be brilliant. Or we could do the history of moods, prudes, and rudes. In other words, that sort of religious symbol, the cross or crucifix uh, with Jesus upon it. Um, Snoods, broods, and dudes. (laughs) I think we should definitely do the history of dudes. Um, <laughs> that would be excellent. I, I would hugely enjoy that. However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very clearly how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of ink is in fact all about elections and fraud, ancient China, the personality of American presidents. It's also about spies and the Cold War. And who could forget... It's about Renaissance letter writing or that the history of losers, which is one of my personal recent favourites, is in fact all about Donald Trump and the 2020 US presidential election. It's about democracy. It's about Jim Carrey and Ace Ventura Pet Detective, Homer's Iliad, Charles Dickens, Workhouses, Oliver Twist, presidential concession speeches, Al Gore, Hillary Clinton and the US War of Independence and General Cornwallis. It's a packed episode, and if you haven't heard it, go back and take a listen. Um, Now, you're probably wondering who is doing all this talking. Let me say that the man not sitting opposite me, uh, we are social distancing still. He is the Kurds and Way of history itself, or perhaps the scooper of the Kurds and Way, or perhaps even the ladle in the hands of the divine scooper of the Kurds and Way of history. He could be all of those things, you never know. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me because we are social distancing still, would you believe? Well, let's just say that if he were a historical cheese, he'd have the nose of a stinking bishop, the zing of a Cornish yarg and the all round likability of a Dairy Lee triangle. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis. I was particularly pleased there with the the likability of a Dairy Lee triangle. I was obsessed with Dairy Lee triangles as a kid. Mm. I said You could just sort them. of munch the end off and yeah. then you could just chew the end off and then squeeze and they'd come out in this really satisfying little sort of spout of cheese, rather like a sort of squeeze of toothpaste. Uh, Although much more toothsome. 
<laughs> you're bombarding me with wonderful words today, James. This is great. The, um, do you know what? That's made me think something. So we are, of course, ladies and gentlemen, doing the history of cheese. And there are so many different ways we can think about cheese. Um, and what I've just realised is that I have my own personal relationship with cheese, which has changed over time. So, uh, and James, I'm sure you will have, well, you think back on your, your childhood life where you were munching on cheese strings or dairy triangles and your palate may have advanced somewhat now to maybe some slightly complex and very stinky blue cheeses. Who, who, who knows? But the point is, as well, I think, is that um, mine certainly has. I'm e- eating some really interesting cheeses. I had some manchego for lunch. Uh, I like I like that. It was really really good. But anyway, it, I I definitely didn't like that even five years ago. Um, and I think that your palate changes. You become uh, more interested, perhaps more used. Well, me certainly uh, more used to a very strong um, tasting things. So um, as a as a as a little kid, you might be into your dairy triangle, but as an adult, you might be into your hardcore uh, extreme cheddars. Does that make sense with you, James? It makes total sense. As you mature, you get a more sophisticated palate. Um, I I insisted on bringing my daughters up uh, liking all sorts of cheese. So uh, rather than introduce uh, mild cheddar to them uh, as toddlers, they were introduced to extra mature cheddar. So they got that (laughs) real sort of taste for cheese. But it struck me thinking about cheese... Um, we've actually talked a lot about cheese across our episodes. <laughs> yeah, it's, we've it's talked ringing about bells. Cheese and the Worms by Carlo Ginzburg's brilliant book where we looked at maggots. There's maggoty cheese, that Sardinian delicacy. The Scythian warriors, we've talked about them and the discovery of, of in the sort of archaeological finds of bags of cheese. We talked about cheese in dreams. We talked about bad cheese. Uh, but the reason we're doing this is because... <laughs> Uh, during lockdown, the perfect antidote for me over the last couple of weeks has been watching Rick Stein's Cornwall, which is a brilliant 15 part uh, series on BBC uh, that tours uh, Cornwall. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's br- really sumptuous, a real sort of, you know, refreshing look outside of your sort of locked in life. And one of the one of the episodes had this amazing um Dutch family who'd moved over to uh, Cornwall and had basically started um, making gouda, uh, and it was incredible. And I thought, having having seen this, I need we need to do something on the history of cheese, which then got me thinking about Samuel Pepys and his uh, his his description of the Great Fire of London, which sees him um, rather than sort of really concerned with with the fire and everything he's more concerned with burying his his parmesan cheese and he describes this this is the great fire of london as you all know um it started on the 2nd of september 1666 and burnt all the way through to um thursday the 6th of september um and it destroys a lot of the sort of london of the time and he describes in an entry on the tuesday the 4th of september 1666 he describes Sir William Penn and I to Tower Street, and there met the fire burning three or four doors beyond Mr. Howells, whose goods, poor man, his trays and dishes, shovels, etc., were flung all along Tower Street in the kennels, and people working therewith from one end to the other, the fire coming in on that narrow street on both sides with infinite fury. Sir William Batten, not knowing how to remove his wine, 
did dig a pit in the garden and laid it in there, and I took the opportunity of laying all the papers of my office that I could not otherwise dispose of, and in the evening Sir William Penn and I did dig another and put our wine in it, and I my parmesan cheese, as well as my wine and some other things. So cheese can be right at the heart of historical events there, Sam. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. It's the everydayness of it, isn't it? Um, it? It's a funny mixture, actually, cheese, isn't it? It's, it's the, he, so he's got Parmesan cheese and he's really worried about it. So there's, there's a balance between it being an everyday item and it being at the heart of major historical events. But also it's a foreign item. It had a certain amount of value. Uh, I, had he had it imported, was it actually... You know, proper Parmesan cheese, do you think? Or was it made made in... in oh, I bet it was real proper Parmesan yeah. cheese imported, which is why it's such a valued item that you'd want to keep hidden and preserved from the fire. And, and such an important part of people's day-to-day -day lives. I mean, cheese was, was an absolute staple and it was eaten all the time. And I want to pick up on this theme because it's it, it explains something which uh, I, I've been reading up about recently. And that is um, ethnic cleansing in the Middle Ages, James, which is, a, which is surprisingly all about cheese. Uh, well, at least there's one example of it. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about Well, I, th I think you can start off by by, by thinking about um, ethnic cleansing, the destruction of certain peoples and how in the Middle Ages it was actually inseparable from the, the idea of making other peoples, that ethnic cleansing was a very important part of historical change. And the understanding of it was certainly underpinned by narratives in the Bible. And there's a little quote here, um, and this comes back to, where are we, 1381. So a peasant's revolt. And many Flemings lost their heads at that time, and namely those who could not say bread and cheese, but instead said brode and case. These quote is from a London chronicler of the 15th century, and he's looking back on the Peasants' Revolt of the summer of 1381. And what's interesting about this is he doesn't say anything else apart from that about this massacre of the Flemings and the fact that they were massacred, according to this person writing, simply because of their inability to pronounce the word cheese and also the word bread. And it actually raises all sorts of very important questions and ideas. Firstly, who was a Fleming? Well, late medieval um, English sources describe as Flemings, not only people who were natives of Flanders, but also inhabitants more broadly of the entirety of northwestern Europe. Um, and the description of the event, this, this massacre, is actually, it, it's described more broadly in Latin chronicles, but really not very much more broadly. I mean, they say, for you could see heaps of dead bodies and corpses lying in the squares and other places... Um, and then there's another from a monk in Westminster. And so they spent the day thinking only of the massacre of the Flemings. So there's really not much going on here, but that's partly why it's really interesting. While we don't know about this, apart from the fact that a, a massacre occurred. Uh, it's the Peasants' Revolt. 
so it's a it's a large uprising across across England in 1381. It has various causes, um, pr- primarily it's associated um, by historians with what happens in the aftermath of the Black Death. There's all sorts of social tensions, economic tensions, political tensions, um, which which sort of come to a head between the 1340s and the 1380s. There's a final trigger in the spring of 1381 to do with someone trying to collect unpaid poll taxes. And it leads to a very large section of rural society rising up and and rioting and um, uh, attacking prisons, the famous prisons in London, the Fleet and the Newgate. But they also attack Flemish uh, immigrants. Um, we know that on the 14th of June, the crowd uh, bundles along the Thames. They burn houses of officials. They open up Westminster Jail. They let loads of people out. Um, and they move into central London. They do something similar there. And then there's a... They don't just massacre the Flemings they come across. They're actually hunting for them. And they're trying to find Flemings. And we know that, that in one ward alone in London, 40 were killed and they were piled up at the church of St. Martin Vintry, uh, which was a church which was popular with the Flemish. And there are other examples of, of groups of the Flemish um, being, uh, being massacred. Um, and historians have really kind of not paid too much attention to this and actually just earned uh, the focus of one sentence in a 20th century history. Now, how do you think about this? Is, is What is the point of this? And I, what's really interesting is that, think about it this way, you say that actually the slaughter of aliens didn't need much explaining. Um, it, it, almost as if it was self-evidently likely to occur when, when the commoners of England rose up. And a, another way of thinking about it is in terms of... Um, the, the, the longer history of, of inter-ethnic bloodshed um, and, and how they understood it. And in the case of the Flemings, the, the language test, which supposedly sealed their fate, their inability to pronounce bread and cheese, was actually a very common um, element in accounts of ethnic cleansing of destruction. The the the, uh, the manuscript he came from dates, it's much later than the Peasants' Revolt in 1381. It dates to 1435. That's worth bearing in mind. So the person who was writing writing the description may not have actually been basing it on uh, first-hand knowledge of the accounts, but might have implanted into this story this idea of the inability to pronounce something. Because we know that that motif about sort of stumbling over tricky words. There are numerous examples of it. It's not just this bread and cheese one from the Flemings. Um, There's one from 1302 in Bruges, where you've got a group massacred because they can't pronounce the words shield and friend. Now, all of those, so if you think of shield and friend and bread and cheese, they're they're very sort of homely words. They're us words, um, which is how it's been described. Um, another example from 1312, he's got people being killed uh, because they can't pronounce, this is in Poland, in Krakow, they can't pronounce, um, again, very homely words, lentil, wheel and mill. Um, and it's believed that this actually goes back to uh, biblical tradition. Um, in the book of Judges, you have the Gileadites forcing the Ephraimites, never heard of them, to say shibboleth. 
And that's another example of how an inability to pronounce something leads to ethnic cleansing. So what's the point of this? Well, James, there's a chance that they they didn't say cheese wrong, but there's also a chance that they did say cheese wrong. Um, But in that not knowing, there's actually a very complex history in the inability to pronounce homely everyday words as being a reason, a justifiable reason or a believed reason in in common narratives for ethnic cleansing. But I just go back to the bottom bottom point here is that um, is how homely and everyday and regular cheese was and that the inability to pronounce it perhaps was something that really really did defined you as different and alien oh that's brilliant sam cheese and ethnic cleansing and the peasants revolt love it love it love it love it now i was inspired not only by watching rick stein talk about cheese to think about this as an episode but also because i read a brilliant article in the conversation by an academic uh, who's an expert on early modern witchcraft called Tabitha Stanmore. And the title of her article, which you should all read, and and you probably will have come across it because it's gone viral, uh, it's entitled The Spellbinding History of Cheese and Witchcraft. And what she does in this sort of really sort of pithily written thought piece is draw out the connections between magic witchcraft and cheese and this absolutely fascinated me so I went off and did a little bit more work around the edges but I think you know that one of the things that struck me is that if we look at the history of cheese and its magical properties it has a very long history so the beyond the sort of medieval period that you've looked at back into ancient myth and legend cheese has had this sort of almost magical property that's connected to divine intervention, divination, um, predicting the future. Uh, it's also attempted to heal the sick and and influence good fortune uh, and also is tied up with the malevolence of witchcraft. But one of the most striking things that I found, um, and this was really what got um, uh, Tabitha Stanmore to write about this was that she came across this um, this um, inst- this sort of recipe uh, in a in a book called the Catherine Polzen's uh, by Catherine Polzen called the Complete Book of Magic and Witchcraft, which basically said that you may fascinate a woman with a piece of cheese, which basically uh, means that you can proffer uh, a woman a lump of cheese. And she will sort of become besotted by you. So I googled this up. uh, And would you believe I actually found a duvet cover? You can purchase a duvet cover um, with this on it and with a picture of a woman and, and cheese, which is extraordinary. But if you go to the complete book of magic and witchcraft itself, um, the recipe is on page 90 to 91. Uh, and it, it's got all sorts of recipes for how to how to charm people, how to have love, love charms and things like um, the introduction of one's hair, clothing, sweat, tears, blood, nails, etc. into a lover's food may be the love charm most widely practised. Um, but there's another one here, um, which is to win the love of a woman, take salt, cheese and flour, mix it together, put it into her room and she will have no rest until she sees you. This is a, a 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, something from uh, Albertus Magnus's uh, Egyptian Secrets. Uh, and on the other page, on the next page, page 91, there's also another um, another recipe, uh, which is slightly more um, complicated, which, and I'll read it in, in its entirety to you. In the pingle, uh, which is a small pan, or the pan, or the house pan, skull a man, boil the heart's blood, oh the toad, with a tallow of the kite, hawk it, chop it finely, kale and hen dirt, chewed cheese and Chicken wart, chicken weed, yellow puddocks, champet, spiders ten, and earwigs twa, sclatters too, which is another word for woodlice, fray foggy, which is moths, dykes, bumbies twenty, fray they bakes, nest, newts fray stinking lockers blue, and will make a better stew or brew, bachelors mourn had a charm, Hearts they have for oh harm. In other words, there's another recipe here to try and charm somebody into um, into being um, being in love with you. But also, you can trace this back to to sort of pagan times and Christian spells about summoning good fortune, healing illness, and in Icelandic folklore, a suitor would carve cheese with symbols before giving it to a young woman, hoping that she'd fall in love with him after eating it. Now, secondly, um, the, this, there's the idea that cheese is connected to fortune-telling. And did you know that this is this was, in fact, in the Middle Ages? It had a name. Uh, the name is Tyromancy, <laughs> would wow. you believe, which it is works. basically divination from cheese. And you could use all sorts of food items... Um, to to for divination purposes, you could use eggs and animal intestines and cheese. And the idea with cheese is that you know, rather like reading tea leaves, it's a way of connecting the patterns and symbols that are in the cheese. And if you think about cheese, you know, and how you make it, and you talked about the the way and everything, and you think about you know, various cheeses with mould in it. Cheese has all sorts of bumps and bits and pieces in it and cracks and rinds, and it's in all sorts of shapes. And the the tyromancer, in other words, the cheese reader, could predict all sorts of things about people's future fortunes from this, whether it be about money, love, sex, travel, death, all those kinds of things could all come into it. Um it's also um, it's also a way cheese is a way to identify thieves and murderers, and this is an example uh, that Tabitha Stanmore gives in that brilliant conversation piece, um, where she talks about um, the method of of blessing cheese with a prayer, and gives an example: uh, "May his mouth be cursed and full of bitterness, 
under his tongue, pain and labour. If he is guilty, he will eat in the name of the devil. If he is not guilty, he will eat in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then what you do is you give the suspect a small piece of cheese to eat and the culprit will be unable to swallow the piece of cheese, which will then show that they are guilty. They're eating in the name of the devil. So there we are. There are two sort of separate things. There's a there's it used as a love potion. There's also it used as a as a way of telling fortunes. And finally, there is the use of the use by witches of of cheese for malevolent practices. Now, witches are often are often accused of curdling milk and turning milk sour, which again is to do with cheese. But I was I was I was looking at some Scottish witchcraft cases um, and I found one uh, dated from the 15th of uh, of April uh, in 1644 and it refers to a woman called Marion Peebles who's implicated as a as a witch and there are various sort of people investigating her and she's accused of meeting the devil in various forms uh, especially as two crows which were the the familiars um and it's it the notes that go along with this um show that she was requested to remove illness after cursing a woman so she gives uh, some some money some silver uh to her husband to to sort of keep quiet and then sends a the woman some cheese um and what happens is the woman then becomes she, the woman refuses to eat the cheese. The woman gets better, but then two cows that she owns take ill. And so the, 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 the cause against her is that she's transferred the illness from people to animals. And the woman got better after biting um, the woman's, the witch's fingers until they bled. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's also noticed that she destroyed the crops and caused a cow to give blood instead of milk. Um, so, you know, there's an example of of meddling malevolent witches. Now, here are some examples of how you can use cheese in everyday life for kind of mysterious magical means. Uh, and I was reading uh, I was reading a blog post uh, by a woman who is a sort of modern day culinary witch uh, and recommends uh, that you could compel someone into action by carving a phrase of intention onto a cheese and place it at their doorstep. So whatever you wanted somebody to do, you could carve that into a sort of piece of cheddar, place it on their doorstep and they would be they would be, you know, forced to do it. Um, another thing is if you if you if you have a question, what you do is you carve possible one word answers into a fresh wheel of cheese then you leave it in a sacred space until mold begins to form on the rind and the mold will fill in uh this this sort of area and reveal the correct answer um so there we are sam a couple of couple of examples uh for you you should all go out and practice that they're brilliant, James. I really enjoy, enjoy enjoyed the witchiness of it. There are various <laughs> issues, <laughs> um, various issues there, which I've, I became interested in, and that's how uh, the history or archaeology of cheese can be used to trace peoples around. You know, I think you you kind of did touch on that slightly. 
And it makes you think about how, uh, you know, the, the, the first evidence we have. So um, one of the things is about is about unglazed prehistoric pottery, right? What's so good about it is that it can absorb things. And one of the things it can absorb is animal fats, it can, as well as plant oils, plant waxes, variety of things. Which means that cheese, evidence of cheese, is one thing that can be identified in unglazed prehistoric pottery. And by doing this, they've dated the milking of animals to the Near East to 7000 BC. Uh, they've, made, they've dated cheese making in Poland to 5400 BC. BC uh, in, and in Ireland, get this, this I thought it was amazing, 3,800 BC. <laughs> wow. So there's clever, clever bit of archaeology there. Um, the oldest cheese itself um, has been um, identified to uh, Zhao He Cemetery in northwest China. Um, it's been radiocarbon dated uh, to 1600 BC. Um, uh, so you've just got all these different Cheese is being made all over the world in different ways. The, the earliest description we have is Roman, um, about 50 AD. So, you know, it's been made for thousands of years before we even get the first description of it. But the, that Roman description, there'd be a lot recognisable there for modern cheesemakers. What I thought was fascinating about all of this was a, a little description of some people... Uh, making cheese in relatively modern America. So this is 1979 and 1980. You've got two American women um, from European heritage. But what they do is they, they leave uh, California, one, and Vermont, the other. And they go to France, where they learn to make fresh and uh, ripened goat's milk cheeses. And then they come back, and on opposite coasts, they... Um, that they set up their own businesses. So one in Vermont, one in California. And what's fascinating about this is that you've got Americans wanting to create cheese from goat's milk and also sheep's milk. But they can only do that by having to travel to Europe. And be that's because of the history of American immigration. Uh, and it meant that because of the types of immigrants moving to America, the, the domestic expertise in cheese production in America was centred on, on cow's milk. So you've got the Puritans from East Anglia. Um, they bring dairy cows and methods of handcrafting cheddar-style cheeses to New England. In the 19th century, they're joined by Dutch, Swiss, Germans and Italians who are all focused on cow's milk cheese. And because of this, there's no um, significant American tradition of making commercial goat or sheep milk cheese production in the 70s and the 80s. There is now lots of artisan people doing it their own way in, you know, classic kind of artisan uh, way of making cheese, which has become almost like an art form. Um, but uh, certainly not that long ago, it wasn't at all. And all of the cheese that you could find in America and all the, all of the cheese making knowledge was all to do with cows and not to do with goats and milk. So cheese making, of course, is to do with empires and migration as much as anything else, James. Oh, Sam, I love that. And this talk about early cheese making leads me to my last example. As I was scooting around the place, reading up on cheese, I chanced on something called um, Cheese and Culture, a history of cheese and its place in Western civilization, uh, by a historian called Paul S. Kindstedt. Uh, and it's a brilliant book. I'd recommend you all go out and check it out. I mean, it, it's really wide ranging. So it starts by looking at Southwest Asia and ancient origins of cheese. And then it looks at relig the re relationship with religion and civilization and trade and 
Mediterranean and then Caesar and then have has a look at cheese production in manors and monasteries. Then it looks at England, Holland and the market for cheese. And then it looks at factory cheese making and the cultural legacy of cheeses. But what really caught my mind here is, I think, one of the earliest descriptions of cheese making that I've come across. And it's in Homer's Odyssey. And would you believe it, Sam, there is a cheese making cyclops here. So this is a, the Odyssey, as you all know, is a sort of an epic poem. It's about 12,000 lines. Um, it's brilliant. And it's basically, you know, the, a, a sort of um, an, a big adventure story with all sorts of characters in it. And it's about 10 years after the Trojan War and Odysseus, uh, the hero, and his men are sailing around the Mediterranean um, and they basically try and get back to their, their homeland, uh, to their hometown of Ithaca. Um, and on this journey, they stop off at the island home of a, a one-eyed giant, um, uh, in other words, Cyclops. And they, they come to shore and Odysseus and his men, when they're sort of roaming around, they find uh, a cave that's inhabited by one of the meanest Cyclopses there is, uh, a Cyclops known as Polyphemos. Um, and he sort of is around the you know, is elsewhere on the island. And they go into his cave, you know, hoping to look for things to, to eat and, and sort of provision themselves with. And they learn, actually, that he is a cheesemaker. Listen to this quote. We soon reached his cave, but Polyphemos was out shepherding. So we went inside and took stock of all that we could see. His cheese racks were loaded with cheeses, and he had more lambs and kids than his pens could hold. They were kept in separate flocks. First, there were the hoggets, then the oldest of the younger lambs, and lastly, the very young ones, all kept apart from one another. As for his dairy, all the vessels, bowls and milk pails into which he milked were swimming with whey. In other words, what you have here is a one-eyed, monstrous, giant, master cheesemaker. So he's got all the vessels that you need for it. He's keeping the animals separate from where he's working. Um, we've heard about the way being kept. We've got various um, ages of uh, lambs uh, and, and sheep that he's got there, his flocks, so that you've basically got milk on tap at all these different levels. Um, so you've got everything that they that, that you know they could need. Now, rather than sort of running off with all of this, what they do is they sit in wait uh, for the Cyclops to come back in with his sheep and, and to let him sort of get on with 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 sort of you know about his his, his things. Um, and what happens is when he's finished his cheese making, Odysseus and his men basically attack him. Uh, they blind him in his one and only eye, so he basically can't he can't um, he can't see them. Uh, and then they flee. And what's worse is that they flee, not only having eaten all his cheeses and everything, um, but they they flee on his sheep. Uh, so they go off away with them. Now the problem with Polyphemos is not only is he really angry, 
uh, but his father uh, just happens to be one of the gods, Poseidon. Uh, and so he summons uh, his father and tells him that he should punish these people. And so the rest of the tale, the Odyssey, is basically about these poor sort of characters, Odysseus and his men, you know, sailing around the, the oceans, you know, trying to trying to get home. So there we are. And the ancient art, the truly ancient art of cheesemaking, Sam. I think it's feta he's discovered there. <laughs> That was very good. Very good indeed. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have enjoyed that very much. I did hugely. And we've got more coming your way. We are um, going to be recording. What have we got coming up, James? Ladders. I think we're doing the history of ladders. Oh, meetings. We're doing the history meetings of meetings. Meetings and tongues. <laughs> you you suggested tongues. Yes, well, I, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Do please get in touch with us on social media to share your stories of cheesy history. Um, we're, we're absolutely... I'm chomping at the cheesy bit for it. Uh, do please follow me on social media at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. It's my new big thing and I'm very excited about it. And I'm sure uh, I'm sure people took cheeses afloat. Uh, you can follow me on at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. We are all over social media, so you can follow us on Instagram. You can also friend us on Facebook. And we have a bespoke website, uh, historiesoftheunexpected.com which has everything that we've been up to in recent years and everything that we're going to be doing uh, so check us out there that's it for now guys we'll be with you again soon cheerio bye take care guys see ya <laughs>